Please open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 39, beginning with verse 1. We have been one week, and this is the second week in the life of Joseph. And we have seen that Joseph was the favorite son of his father, Jacob, that from a tender age, Joseph had become accustomed to the finer things in life. His clothing was uh, very much attention-getting. His father was rich. Joseph's dreams were e- even were encouraging. They indicated that uh, his whole family would end up bowing down before him. And so his future was certain. He was what I have called a golden boy. He was the kid that did no wrong. But then during the 17th year of his life, All of his hopes were shattered. Everything and everyone he had known or depended upon were taken from him, and he found himself sold into slavery. His time was no longer his own, and now he existed to do exactly what uh, he was told to do by his master. And his master was a man named Potiphar, who was the head bodyguard of Pharaoh. He was a long way away from the people who loved him or hated him, his family, and uh, he was a stranger in a strange land. And yet, despite where he was, there was a note of hope in his life, namely that God was with him, and you'll see this is a recurring theme through our text. Now, let me ask you a question. If, if you'll think with me for a second, what does it mean for God to be with you? If I tell you that that's a recurring theme through this text, that God was with Joseph, what would you expect? God was with Joseph. Well, if you've ever heard the little saying, um, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Now, that is accurate, but it often causes us to think things that we shouldn't think at all. And I think normally what it causes us to think is that our life will have the aspect of a fairy tale where you get to the end of the story and the last words are, you know, and the prince and the princess were married, and they lived happily ever after. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, namely that you will get married, of course, and then live happily ever after. And so this story would be a bit of a shock to you um, because it doesn't exactly have an account of Joseph living happily ever after. We could get over the hurdle of what happened last week, namely that Uh, They were going to kill him, and then he escaped at the last minute, and where did he escape? Into slavery. We could get over that, but this week it gets even more bleak. Um, And so we have to face the fact that God is with a man who things get worse and worse for. And this is one of the reasons why I think children naturally devour the Old Testament Stories of Old Testament saints because never ever are their lives painted as a rosy picture. Um, when we look at the Old Testament saints, their lives aren't dainty, they're not prettified, uh, they're not happily ever after. They're people like us. They, they sweat, uh, they have flesh and blood, they're hungry, they're thirsty, they fail, they're fearful and they are tempted, and they have passion. Now, put yourself then in Joseph's shoes as we read this account instead of verse 
1 to 12, verses 1 to 23. This is the word of God, and it is eternally true. Genesis chapter 39. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an Egyptian officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the bodyguard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, so he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. Now his master saw that the Lord was with him and how the Lord caused all that he did to prosper in his hand. So Joseph found favor in his sight and became his personal servant. And he made him overseer over his house and all that he owned he put in his charge. It came about that from the time he made him overseer in his house and over all that he owned, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house on account of Joseph. Thus the Lord's blessing was upon all that he owned in the house and in the field. So he left everything he owned in Joseph's charge, and with him there he did not concern himself with anything except the food which he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. It came about after these events that his master's wife looked with desire at Joseph, and she said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, with me here, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house, and he has put all that he owns in my charge. There is no one greater in this house than I, and he has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do this great evil and sin against God? As she spoke to Joseph day after day, He did not listen to her to lie beside her or be with her. Now it happened one day that he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the household was there inside. She caught him by his garment saying, Lie with me. And he left his garment in her hand and fled and went outside. When she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled outside, she called to the women, to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought in a Hebrew to us to make sport of us. He came in to me to lie with me, and I screamed. When he heard that I raised my voice and screamed, he left his garment beside me and fled and went outside. So she left his garment beside her until his master came home. Then she spoke to him with these words. The Hebrew slave whom you brought to us came in to me to make sport of me. And as I raised my voice and screamed, he left his garment beside me and fled outside. Now when his master heard the words of his wife, which she spoke to him, saying, This is what your slave did to me, his anger burned. So Joseph's master took him and put him into the jail, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in the jail. But the Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to him and gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. The chief jailer committed to Joseph's charge all the prisoners who were in the jail so that whatever was done there, he was responsible for it. The chief jailer did not supervise anything under Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him and whatever he did, the Lord made to prosper. This is God's word and it is eternally true. Now, you notice that I said that the theme through this is that God was with Joseph. If you look at verse 2, it says the Lord was with Joseph. At verse 3, his master saw that the Lord was with him. Down to verse 5, it says he put him over all that he owned. The Lord blessed the Egyptian's house on account of this. The Lord's blessing was upon all that he owned. So the blessing comes from Joseph over 
Potiphar and over everything Potiphar owns because of Joseph. And if you look down at verse 21 when he's in jail, it says, but what? The Lord was with Joseph. And then verse 23, the Lord was with him, it says, because the Lord was with him. The jailer put everything under his charge and everything prospered. So we see this theme, it's all through it, that Joseph had God's blessing and that consequently those that put their affairs under Joseph's authority were also blessed because of God's blessing on Joseph. Now, this is the situation, but no story would be much of a story without a plot that thickens. And here we see that the hero has a conflict in which his moral fiber is tested. Joseph is seduced. Now, why is he seduced? Well, uh, look at verse 6. The very end, it says, Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. Now, skip back to Genesis chapter 29, please. Verse 17. Genesis 29, verse 17. And there we see a statement made about Joseph's mother. And it says there what? It says, But Rachel was beautiful of form and face. Same construction. It's one other time in Scripture. The only time, though, that it's used about a man is right here with Joseph. Joseph's the only man in Scripture who's said to be handsome in form and appearance. So he had a good face and he had a good body. This is Joseph. And his master's wife looks at him uh, and she says, I want him. It's just that simple. He was young, he was bright, and she undoubtedly had um, a bit of boredom and her fickle taste found a place to rest for a time. We don't know how the seduction began, whether it was uh, sidelong looks that she sent Joseph's way when he passed by or supposedly innocent touches, body contact, light touch of the hand, a brush of the body. Undoubtedly, uh, there were aspects of it which were coy, but Joseph was no one's fool. He knew exactly what she wanted. And it says what she wanted, doesn't it? It says Joseph was handsome, and so she said to him something that isn't coy at all. She said, lie with me. Now, here is Joseph. He has the complete and the absolute confidence of the man of the house. And so you think about his life, the only thing he lacked really was some relational relief, some uh, love. And in fact, if you think about it, uh, ever since his brothers decided to kill him, he was a little bit relationally starved. You make the case that Joseph uh, probably had every good thing that he needed except somebody to adore him. And certainly he needed that. Certainly, he felt the loneliness of being a stranger in a strange land. He felt the absence of someone to share his life with. And so he would have been susceptible to this. Joseph was not a robot. Joseph was a normal man. If Jesus was tempted in all ways like as we are, yet without sin, certainly Joseph was tempted as we are. Joseph, the type of Christ. What could be more pleasant than a quiet affair with Potiphar's wife? Now stop for a second and put yourself in Joseph's position. You're far away from anyone that knows you. You're not even going to return at the end of the week, fly back into Indianapolis and drive back to Bloomington. There's no hope of going back to your family. 
Nobody knows you. The reputation of your father and your grandfather and your great-grandfather and the approval of your mother and your brothers and sisters, all those things that help to keep us faithful, Joseph doesn't have. He's in a pagan land. It's not just a strange land, but it's a pagan land. And so it would have been very, very easy for Joseph to give in to this temptation. Uh, He had no external, no earthly accountability. And then there's a little element that's thrown in here that is the final straw. It says that the master of the home was gone for the day. And so when the most intense seduction comes to him, he doesn't even have the fear of his master. His master's wife wants him. Nobody knows him. It's a pagan land. He's in a very wealthy house. And in fact, you can make the case that Joseph, not being a dummy, would have known that if he didn't give in to her, he knew, even though Shakespeare hadn't written it, that hell hath no fury greater than a woman scorned. And so he could have guessed that it's likely that he'd be booted from this house and from his position if he didn't give in to her. All right. We find a similar situation in terms of the enticement in Proverbs chapter 7. If you'd turn there with me, please. Proverbs is uh, a book of instructions, primarily of a son, of a father to his son. And it's very interesting that whereas we would just give generalizations to our children, not specific, not wanting to uh, cause... uh, problems in our son's conscience. In Proverbs, it's very, very specific. It says, Say to wisdom, verse 4, You are my sister, and call understanding your intimate friend, that they may keep you from what? An adulteress from the foreigner who flatters with her words. So here with Joseph, this is a foreigner. And so what does it say? For at the window of my house, I looked out through my lattice, through my curtains, as it were, and I saw among the naive and discerned among the youths a young man lacking sense, passing through the street near her corner, and he takes the way to her house in the twilight, in the evening, in the middle of the night, and in the darkness. And behold, a woman comes to meet him, dressed as a harlot and cunning of heart. In other words, her body was busting out. She is boisterous and rebellious, so she's fun-loving. Her feet do not remain at home, as opposed to Titus 2, which tells older women to teach younger women to what? Be keepers at home. Very interesting that Scripture has her feet are not at home, and Titus 2 says that the godly woman is devoted to her home. Well, not this woman. It says, she is now in the streets, now in the squares, and works by every corner. So she seizes him and kisses him, and with a brazen face she says to him, I was due to offer peace offerings. Today I have paid my vows. Therefore, I have come out to meet you, to seek your presence earnestly, and I have found you. I have spread my couch with coverings, with colored linens of Egypt. I have sprinkled my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us drink our fill of love until morning. Let us delight ourselves with caresses. For my husband, what, is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He has taken a bag of money with him. At the full moon, he will come home. With her many persuasions, she entices him. With her flattering lips, she seduces him. Suddenly, he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter. Similar to the temptation that Joseph faced. 
and particularly the aspect of the husband not being at home. He's on a trip. He's gone. Don't worry about it. So the master of the home is gone. Absolute secrecy, perfect safety. The woman finds you attractive. And who knows? She might have talked to him much about the loveless marriage. Potiphar isn't sensitive to me the way you are, Joseph. Joseph, I, I just find your conversation so stimulating. Joseph, I, I don't think you understand what it is to, to be married to a man like Potiphar. You know? Well, you know, I, I've sensed your frustration, Potiphar's wife. Um, he is a bit of an oaf and a brute. And, you know, if you talk to me, um, I'll tell you what. Go get a chick flick and we'll watch a chick flick together. Oh, Joseph, I just love you. Potiphar never is willing to watch chick flicks with me. Put them down. I have in the back a brochure, a little pamphlet. It's called Adultery, Fleeing Deadly Liaisons. And I'd like any of you who the Lord indicates that this is an area to clean up in your life to get one of these as you leave today. There, I think I have two of the four that are up there, so you'll have to get one of the two that's left or get one from me. <laughs> of course, that's part of the, ju- the, the beauty of having a pastor is Ain't nothing you can come to me that I haven't heard and been through time after time after time. So actually, if you come and get a pamphlet, I will respect you. I won't look down on you. Anyhow, how does it happen? It always happens by uh, somebody talking to you just a little bit about their marriage. It just seems innocent. And then pretty soon you're over changing their storm windows. And an awful lot of these things are not just a matter of immediate lust, but they're a matter of a combination of lust and a relationship. And relationships with the opposite sex are dangerous also. But what does the Bible tell us? The Bible tells us God was with Joseph. How was God with Joseph? God was with Joseph, blessing him. The temptation comes. God is with Joseph and blesses him. Now, what were the details of Joseph's victory in this situation? First, notice Joseph's verbal response to the original seduction. His answer is straightforward. It's not a a bunch of this, that, and the other thing, and maybe, and maybe not, and we'll see next week, and and, gee whiz, you know, I've got to go milk the cow. But Joseph does what? He faces the temptation head on. And if you look at how he faces the temptation... In verse 8, you'll see, Behold, with me here, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house, and he has put all that he owns in my charge. Now, that's the one thing he could say that would anger her, right? If he had avoided talking of her husband, he could have gotten out of it much more tactfully, but he goes for the jugular. He says, you're his wife, and he has, he has not denied me anything. And so he brings her husband into it, right? Right? It's like you're, you're on a plane and a woman starts, you know, talking to you and coming on to you and you say, 
You know, my wife is home with my five children. And would you like to see a picture of my wife? Okay, that's what Joseph does. But he doesn't stop there. Did you notice that? He goes on. What else does he do without looking down? Without looking down. What else does he do? Put it down. Just put it down. What else does he do? He brings God into it. And if the first thing didn't work, the second thing would, right? God. Your husband and God are watching. Immediately he deals. He doesn't preach. He just brings it up. He says, look, your master is giving me everything. There's only one thing he has withheld from me. And then he says about God, what does he say? He says, how could I do this great evil and sin against God? It's very interesting. If you look at Psalm 51, when David, who did fall into adultery, when David is confessing that sin in Psalm 51, the psalm of confession, what does he say in verse 4? He says, against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So Joseph says, it would be a sin against my boss and it would be a sin against God. David says, it's against God that I committed adultery and murder. Now, does that mean that he didn't sin against Bathsheba's husband, Uriah? No, it doesn't mean that at all. First, he brings up the husband and God. He talks directly. He doesn't talk around the bush. Straightforwardly, he says, no, I would be wronging your husband and God. Then second, Joseph avoided further contact with temptation. Did you see that? It says what? Verse 10, as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he did not listen to her to lie beside her or be with her. Okay? He didn't even listen to her. In verse 8, he refused. He didn't listen. Joseph avoided further contact with temptation. And often it's the case that we find the strength initially to say no to a proposal of sin and yet afterwards hold on to the memory of the temptation because the memory of the temptation is sweet. Do you understand what I'm saying? But Joseph put everything connected with this temptation away. He did not listen. Many, many times you and I fall into sin because we listen to the temptation. And then the temptation becomes a sweet morsel that we eat in secret. Joseph could have talked to her. He could have sat and explained why he wasn't going to go into bed with her. He could have shut the door of the dorm room and sat and talked with her and explained to her why. And that's pathetic. And yet we all do that. We, 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 we relish the dainty morsels while holding on to the principle of the big deal. Right? Joseph didn't do that. He would not listen to her. He didn't flirt with adultery. He wouldn't listen. It's spiritual foolishness to think that we can listen and avoid the actual committing of the sin. Day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her, or what? To be with her. So he avoided the woman. He avoided her words. He avoided looking, listening. He avoided anything to do with her. In the Westminster Larger Catechism, questions 137 and 138 and 139 deal with the seventh commandment. 
They are this. Question 137, which is the seventh commandment? The answer, the seventh commandment is thou shalt not commit adultery. Question 138, what are the duties required in the seventh commandment? Now listen to the duties that uh, our, our forefathers said came out of this commandment. The duties required in the seventh commandment are chastity in body, mind, affections, words, and behavior. Chastity in body, mind, affections, words, and behavior, and the preservation of it in ourselves and others. Watchfulness over the eyes and the senses, all the senses. Temperance, keeping of chaste company, modesty in apparel, marriage by those that don't have the gift of continency. In other words, you have a duty to get married if you can't be pure, single. And then listen. Conjugal love, a demand, a demand of Scripture that those who are married give their bodies to each other. This is commanded in the seventh commandment. And then listen, it says, and cohabitation. In other words, not just love, but the body living together. And then what? Diligent labor in our callings. Now, isn't that weird? Right in the middle of this, all of a sudden it says diligent labor in our callings. Where did that come from? Why would God command us to work six days a week? If you know anything about yourself and your temptations, you know that those temptations come particularly strongly when you are not um, uh, profitably employed. Work is a gift. Work is a gift because if you have a job to do and you're accountable to do your job, what does it do? It takes your mind off of temptation, doesn't it? How many times in talking, particularly to men, I've encouraged them that they need to have a job where they work, where they're tired, where they sweat, where they emotionally get exhausted. That when we think that work is something that the best man has to do the least of, we completely misunderstand the nature of our existence. Completely misunderstand it. So here, in the explanation of the seventh commandment and what we're supposed to do, one of the things to protect us from adultery is that we give ourselves to our work. Isn't that interesting? Diligent labor in our calling, shunning all occasions of uncleanness and resisting temptations thereunto. Did you remember what Job said? He said, I made a covenant with mine eyes that he wouldn't look on a maid. Then it says, what are the sins forbidden in the seventh command? And it says, the sins forbidden in the seventh commandment, besides the neglect of the duties required, first of all, you've got to do all the things that we just got done saying you've got to do, but then these are the things that you are supposed to avoid. Adultery, fornication, rape, incest, sodomy, and all unnatural lusts, all unclean imaginations, thoughts, purposes, and affections, all corrupt or filthy communications, or even listening to them, wanton looks, in other words, the second look, okay, impudent or light behavior, immodest apparel, in other words, the talking of the precious gift of sexuality as if it's a trivial thing, hooking up, okay, that is what? That is impudent and light behavior, immodest apparel, prohibiting of lawful and dispensing with unlawful marriages. In other words, when parents forbid their, their children from a lawful marriage, that's a violation of the seventh commandment. 
Isn't it interesting, today all of a sudden people are discovering going to the father and asking for the privilege of the hand of the daughter in marriage. But do you realize that the father has an exact parallel duty, which is to not forbid it if it is a lawful marriage. If the father forbids a marriage and it's a lawful marriage, the father has sinned against the seventh commandment. You ever, ever think of that? Doesn't that seem weird? Never ever do you have submission to authority without God giving commands to the authority to be godly and to be righteous in the way that they respond to those commands. And then it goes on and it says, allowing, tolerating, resorting, entangling vows of single life, in other words, uh, <laughs> the Reformation, undue delay of marriage, undue delay of marriage for the sake of a PhD or a master's degree. Having more wives or husbands than one at the same time, unjust divorce or desertion, idleness, gluttony, drunkenness, unchaste company, lascivious songs, books, pictures, dancing, stage plays, and all other provocations to or acts of uncleanness, either in ourselves or others. If, if, if an African saw me right now, he'd know why I made those faces. I mean, can you imagine coming from any other culture at any other point in time other than maybe ancient Greece or Rome into American culture and looking at us? Just looking. So how do we view adultery today? Well, I want to read an excerpt from the, the impeachment trial of President Clinton. Here is what Representative James Rogan, Republican of California, Republican, mind you, said February 6, 1999, in the impeachment trial of President Clinton. He says, here's an important note. As regrettable as the president's choice was, speaking of his relationship with Monica Uwinski, as regrettable as his choice was here, any accountability for the private aspect for this should not be determined by the Congress of the United States. It should be determined by his family. Had the president's bad choice simply ended with this what? Anybody know the word? It begins with an I. That's right. Who said it? Indiscretion. Had the president's bad choice simply ended with this indiscretion, we would not be here today. Adultery may be a lot of things, but it is not an impeachable offense. Throughout all of this, throughout this presentation, it is important to keep in mind that we seek no congressional punishment for a man who chose to cheat on his wife. However, we have a legal obligation to expect constitutional accountability for a president who chooses to cheat the law. Unquote. Now, what's going on here? What's going on is that a sin that's directly against the character of God, who is perpetually faithful to his bride, the church, he cannot be less than such. A sin that is a visible demonstration of the destruction of God's faithfulness, that assaults a wife on the most deepest level she can be assaulted, that absolutely destroys the children, and does it in the face of the entire United States is now an indiscretion. It's privatized and it just don't matter except if Hillary doesn't like it. And who's even talking about Chelsea? But if he goes and tries to suborn perjury 
Well, now there is something that the society has a vested interest in opposing and exposing and having an impeachment for. What's going on? What's going on in the United States is not just a post-Christian, but it's a pagan culture where the law of God don't matter. It just don't matter. But the rule of law, no society can turn away from that. And so a man who suggests a slight lie in order to escape legal accountability is impeached. All right? But a man who, in front of the whole world, violates the seventh commandment to the destruction of his home, to the destruction of his daughter and his wife, to the destruction of every single person in his life who have helped him get to where he is, every person from the chairman of the Democratic Party down to the lowliest Tom, Dick, or Harry who drives around in an F-150 and has Clinton Gore on the back bumper of his truck. Every single one of those people, this man has kissed off for the sake of a moment's pleasure. And that don't matter. What matters is he suborned perjury. Okay? And that's a pagan nation. It's a pagan nation that decides it has no vested interest in law in the act of adultery. Now, why am I talking about President Clinton? Normally, I don't do this. I'm doing it because it's the elephant in the tent. I mean... Why should the pulpit be the one place we can't talk about President Clinton? Jay Leno does it. You know, this is the most notorious adultery that our country has seen in who knows how many years. Decades and decades and decades. And the question is, what exactly is adultery? It is a violation of God's moral law. It is a terrible act of wickedness. And if King David's Adultery could be written down in Scripture, including the prayer of confession that he gave afterwards, then we today can talk about adultery in the church and how to avoid it. And we can name it. And we can say that adultery is absolutely unbelievably destructive. It's not accidental when he wanted to cover up adultery that murder was what the king of Jerusalem stooped to. It's not accidental that if you're a president, you're the most powerful person in the whole world, that you'll do anything to avoid exposure. We could just be glad that Clinton didn't have a high view of adultery and didn't bother using his power to do what he could have done to hide it. And who knows what other men have done. Adultery is a very, very, very serious thing. This is what Joe Sobern wrote back in 1987 when another adultery came public, and thank God that time it put that man's public career to rest for good. Do you remember who it was? It was Gary Hart. This is what he said. Joe Sobern wrote, he said, The plain truth is that an adulterer is a man who is willing to betray the most important people in his life. It's a knavish act. It violates honor, loyalty, and love. Bad judgment is the least of the faults. Perpetual mantra about Clinton. You know, he said it was stupid. That's what they kept saying. It was a stupid. No, no, no. Bad judgment and stupidity is the least of the faults involved in this sin. It pales beside the self-absorption and the vanity and the disregard for others and the irresponsibility and the personal disloyalty of this act. 
Adultery is a horrendous sin. It's horrendous. And Joseph did what? Joseph wouldn't do it. The Lord was with Joseph, and he didn't do it. And many of you have escaped adultery about like Joseph, leaving your clothing in the hands of the man or the woman. And you know something? All I want to say this morning is praise God you escaped. And if you walked naked, some of the Hebrew commentators on this text actually think it was under his underclothing and that he literally went out without clothing on from her chamber. And you know, if that's how you get out of adultery, if you are absolutely humiliated in front of the other servants, it just don't matter. <laughs> Run! Don't worry about how you look to people. When I was in seminary, we were asked one day by a professor, if all of us could share with one another, break up into little groups, you know, because this will help you learn, and, and then just share with each other, if your house was on fire and all of a sudden they told you that you could take one thing out of your house, what would you take? And I'll never forget, the guy I was with, he said that he would take his piano. <laughs> now, I'm sorry, I don't remember who it was, and so it's safe for me to say, he's an idiot. You know, imagine this guy trying to, like, wrestle this piano out the front door while the house is burning down on top of him. And yet, what a perfect picture of how often we have been willing in order to maintain our self-composure and our self-image and our pride, you know, we, we, we kind of back away slowly. And that's not what Joseph did. He left his clothing in her hands and he ran. It didn't matter what he looked like to anybody, you know. It's just like, I'm out of here. And when I think about the various callings that some of you, I think about this with opera singers all the time. If what I have heard about the opera scene is true, then you better be very, very good about fleeing sexual sin if you're going to give yourself to the opera world. Because there are going to be nice, fancy parties in San Francisco where all the muckety-mucks that give the money, and let me tell you, serious money to support opera houses, are like getting drunk, and their bosoms are busting out of their dresses, and you're the star, and you're there, and they begin to put the move on you, you better know how to conduct yourself like Joseph. You have no business being in opera. And if you're a businessman and a salesman, and you make lots of trips, and you don't find yourself capable of being in a motel room without watching things on the television that you shouldn't be watching, you will not do that night after night, weekend after weekend, or weekday after weekday, without falling into adultery. And so guess what? You need to run. You need to find another job, another calling, even if it means your family goes into poverty. What does it profit a man to gain the world and lose his soul? What are you going to give for your soul? What are you going to give for your relationship with God? What are you going to give for your relationship with your wife? Sam Bork, I'm so proud of him. I, there are things I can't tell you that I know. But I will tell you something I am able to tell you. When Sam travels, you open up his, his, his saxophone case, and you know what's in there? 10, 20 pictures of his family. 
right? So here he is backstage, and you know what goes on backstage, right? And there's all these, like, little children and pictures of them, and Sam takes them out, and he's so proud of them. You see? That's the kind of self-discipline you need to have if you're going to go into that kind of profession. Running is not just leaving the bedroom when she's pulling on your clothing. It's choosing a career. It's choosing what hotel you stay in. It's choosing whether or not you travel with somebody. Guess what? Al Mohler always travels with somebody. Surprise. Here's what Billy Graham says. He's asked, what safeguards have you taken over the years to protect yourself and maintain personal spiritual purity. And this was back in 1988 that he said this. He said, I decided there were three areas that Satan could attack, pride, morals, and finances. Over the years, I tried to set up safeguards against the dangers of each. Concerning morals, he says, I'm sure I've been tempted, especially in my younger years, but there has never been anything close to an incident. And we just think, well, that's wonderful. What a godly man. No, no, no. What a common sense man. What a practical man. Because listen to what he says next. He says, I took precautions. From the earliest days, I have never had a meal alone with a woman other than Ruth, his wife. Not even in a restaurant. I have never ridden in an automobile alone with a woman other than my wife. Those kinds of precautions can lead to some misunderstandings. There was a time when my wife Ruth thought I was too cold to women. But I always had this in the back of the mind. There is always the chance of misunderstanding. You look at him and you see he's completing it faithfully. All right? You say, why? Oh, he's so godly. No, I took precautions. I do not eat alone with a woman other than my wife. I do not travel alone with a woman other than my wife. Guess what? He gets to the end of his ministry and he is found faithful. Why? I took precautions. It may be you're in a business where you have to travel alone with a woman in order to do your job. And I say to you, are you sure you should be in that business? I'm not making these things up. They're here in this congregation. Should you be doing such a job? This is something that you need to talk to God about and get counsel from your wife. Is she comfortable with you traveling with that woman? You know, in the office, well, I won't get into this. Um, but, you know, we have specific things that we do in the office. Uh, one thing is, I'll tell you the safe one. You might ask my wife what some of the other things are. One thing is, in the office, we don't meet with a woman alone. Now, you think, well, that's, that's normal. No, it's not normal. Churches all over the country, pastors will meet with women alone with the door shut. We don't do that. And if you complain that some people might overhear your confession of sin, we say, you know, there's not anything that they haven't heard. And you say, well, I just feel more comfortable with the door shut. And we say, uh-uh, door ain't going to be shut. And you know why? Because even if you're strong and the thought would never enter your mind, I'm not. Do you understand that? I don't trust myself. I have men say to me, I'd never commit adultery. And I laugh at them and I say, you are a fool. You're so much stronger than King David was. So much more godly. You must write real special praise courses. (laughs) 
brothers and sisters, there's not one of you that is above being tempted by adultery. And let me tell you, this room is filled with people who have fallen into fornication before marriage and adultery after marriage. I was once at a church where I talked about how common adultery is among the people of God. And I had a woman afterwards, an inactive elder's wife, tell me that there was no adultery in that church. And the elders, I didn't even have to open my mouth. The elders just looked at her and said, sorry, honey. There's adultery in our church. And when I look around here and I look at you, the destruction in this church because of sexual sin is mind-boggling. And adultery is some that's, that's more, more easily able to be talked about. And so I just ask you, you're going to pussyfoot? You're going to talk to her but just not get into bed? You're going to close the door? You're going to hang out with her because she is good to look at? You're going to talk to her about how, you know, um, the difference in age would really be an obstacle to you and me? <laughs> You know, or are you going to talk about God? You're going to talk about her husband? You're going to flee? You're not going to be with her? What are you going to do? Whatever the sin is, what are you going to do? Billy Graham says, I took precautions. Are you going to take precautions? Are you going to think about your career in the context of sexual faithfulness with a wife and children you don't even know yet? What are you going to do? You're going to live the life of a hedonist, 21st century American, watching it on television, watching it in movies, making jokes about it, dressing in a way that shows that you don't take sexual sin lightly. And you know what? You will reap the consequences of your naivete, just like that foolish youth in the book of Proverbs did. And the consequences are, are awful. Well, praise God. God was with Joseph. And so he, he did not fall. And because God was with him, then what happened to him? He went to jail. <laughs> and God was with Joseph, and he went to jail. So if you're in jail right now, and you're suffering because you refuse to give in to sin, God is with you. God is with you. Let's pray.